Parcasters, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. When I'm not making podcasts, I love listening to them. And one of my all-time favorites is the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults. And today I'm sharing two shocking episodes I think you'll really love. So if you do, be sure to follow Cults free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1875... A plague swept through Newtown, Australia. Young Mary Chase was about to be its latest victim. A doctor had concluded there was nothing left to do for her. According to him, she would be dead by morning. Distraught, the girl's mother sent for the town pastor, John Dowie. She wanted him to preside over her daughter's last remaining hours. When Dowie arrived, he was surprised to see Mary, his demure Sunday school pupil, mumbling obscenities. The sight filled him with an awful certainty. The illness was no natural malady. It had to be the work of the devil. In an attempt to drive the devil out, John placed his hands on the feverish young girl and prayed. Before this moment, he'd never tried to heal someone with prayer. Nevertheless, John had faith in the power of God. Shortly after he began praying, a sudden peace fell over the room, and Mary's body stilled. Far from being jubilant, her mother feared that she was dead. But then, like magic, the young girl opened her eyes. Triumphant, Dowie declared that God had answered his prayers, pulling Mary from the edge of death. The miracle cemented his faith that God worked through him. This fervent belief would go on to win him followers and wealth, ultimately leading to John Dowie becoming the religious robber baron. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a podcast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
This week, we'll dive into the life of John Alexander Dowie, a controversial figure in the faith healer movement of the late 19th century. We'll track his early years as a pastor and his growing discontent with the church. Then, we'll detail how he began his own movement. Next week, we'll cover the growth of Dowie's movement, the Christian Catholic Apostolic Church. Then we'll see how his greed brought about the end of his following. Finally, we'll explore Dowie's lasting impact on evangelical communities around the world. John Alexander Dowie was born in May of 1847 in Edinburgh, Scotland. His father, John Sr., was a street preacher, and his mother, Anne, was a homemaker. Young Dowie's childhood was rough. The family was very poor, and making matters worse, he was a sickly boy. Yet despite his ill health, Dowie was a confident and energetic child. He was the leader of a gang of troublemaking neighborhood boys. Once, six-year-old John is said to have convinced his gang that they should act like real men and take up smoking. He said this as he brandished the pipe and Cavendish tobacco he had stolen from his father. The other six-year-olds watched in awe as Dowie took long puffs from the pipe. Since Dowie loved showing off, he kept smoking until he made himself sick. Then he began to vomit uncontrollably to the amusement of his friends. Afterwards, Dowie trudged back home, humiliated. The occasion was the last time he ever experimented with a pipe. Weeks later, he signed a pledge with the Edinburgh branch of the Juvenile Abstainers. He did so largely because he wanted to hurt the business that was responsible for his public embarrassment. In this vein, it's clear that even at six years old, Dowie's delicate ego was already taking shape. In the summer of 1854, another of Dowie's future traits began to emerge. The Dowie family were devout members of their congregational church, and for several months, seven-year-old Dowie had served as a backup to the church's elderly singer during Sunday services. In this role, he'd quickly learned all the hymns by heart. Then, one evening, as Dowie and his father joined their minister for some street preaching, the pastor asked Dowie to sing for the gathered crowd. As he began singing, the crowd was mesmerized, some to the point of tears. Dowie himself was similarly moved. He later claimed that he saw God smile down on him from the skies. The experience secured his belief in God's existence, and more importantly, it was also Dowie's first taste of a crowd's adoration. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. John Dowie's early personality and interests not only indicated his future in the church, it also pointed to his desire to be followed by the masses. Northwestern professor of psychology Jennifer Tackett states that this is a sign of Dowie's social dominance. She explains that people who score high in social dominance are assertive, like to be the center of attention, and prefer to give orders rather than take them. Young Dowie was already a leader among his friends, and despite his young age, his performance at the street pulpit proved to him that he could also command an older crowd's attention. Dowie soon believed that this was what he was meant to do with his life. 
In his search for more proof that he was meant to lead men, Dowie asked his parents about the meaning of his name. John Sr. pointed his son to the Bible, where the name originated. Dowie poured through the text until he found it. John Alexander, by the grace of God, a helper of man. Dowie interpreted the verse as a celestial sign. He was determined to live up to his name. In service of this, though he was still in grade school, Dowie read any spiritual book he could get his hands on. In addition, Dowie's chronic illnesses often required him to stay home. His convalescence gave him the opportunity to eavesdrop on his father's conversations about theology, adding to his religious education. Consequently, by his teen years, Dowie was well-versed in theology. But in December 1860, 13-year-old Dowie's education was cut short when his family decided to leave Scotland in search of better work opportunities. They sailed to Adelaide, Australia, where they joined John Murray's older brother, Alexander Dowie. While Australia wasn't home, it was much cheaper, allowing the family to enjoy a better quality of life than in Scotland. Despite their improved circumstances, Dowie's headstrong nature led to fits of temper towards authority figures. Anne was aware of her son's particular trait. So when Dowie accepted a job working for his uncle's boot factory, she warned him not to upset anyone. However, the two Dowie men soon clashed. During one argument over a package of envelopes, the younger Dowie went as far as to threaten his uncle with a metal horseshoe. Fortunately, Uncle Alexander walked away, certain that Dowie's temper would one day get him into trouble. Despite this instance of de-escalation, things eventually got too tense between the two. And after only four months at the shoe factory, Dowie left for another job as a clerk at a dry goods store. At his new workplace, Dowie developed a talent for business. Despite his young age, he rose through the ranks and eventually became the store's financial manager. Soon, Dowie made enough money to start his own shop. Almost immediately after settling in, the nearby gasworks exploded, plunging the whole city into darkness. In the midst of the chaos, Dowie saw an opportunity. He bought all the lamps and kerosene oil in town. This forced everyone to buy from his shop at inflated prices. Dowie didn't consider capitalizing on a crisis unethical. Instead, he saw it as a smart business decision. However, financial success wasn't the only thing on his mind. In 1863, 16-year-old Dowie was still plagued by the illness he'd had since childhood. Sometimes his symptoms would get so bad that he couldn't even walk. Furthermore, years of taking medicine hadn't helped. It only seemed to have made him weaker. Frustrated, Dowie finally decided to ask God for help. He reasoned that if God had crafted his body, then only God could cure it. He wrote on the subject, If my watch went wrong, I should not take it to a blacksmith. I would take it to a watchmaker. My body had gone wrong, and the Lord knoweth my frame. I will never take another drop of medicine while I live. To Dowie's amazement, his prayers worked. The morning after he quit his medicine and surrendered his health to God, Dowie awoke feeling better than ever. He suddenly had the energy to go for long walks and an appetite that saw him devour whatever food he could find. Dowie felt that God had given him his life back, something that medicine was never able to do. 
Though he was ecstatic, Dowie largely kept his miraculous recovery to himself. Perhaps he felt like people wouldn't believe him. Whatever the reason, he returned to being a contemplative student, continuing to build his knowledge of religious scripture. His efforts piqued the attention of John Murray, who recognized the uniqueness of his teenage son's interest in the ministry. A man of the church himself, John encouraged Dowie's aspirations, even hiring a private tutor for him. This support allowed Dowie to focus on his studies for the next few years. By 1869, after receiving two years of tutoring, 22-year-old John Dowie was ready to study theology at a proper university. Although he had grown to like his adopted home, Australia didn't yet have the established educational institutions that Scotland had to offer. So he sailed back to his birthplace, Edinburgh. Once back in Scotland, Dowie was surrounded by theology professors and church reformers. They infused the city with exciting philosophical ideas, and Dowie felt like he was at the epicenter of it all. But far from getting distracted, he kept himself busy. Apart from his coursework at the Free Church College, he worked as a chaplain at the Edinburgh Infirmary and spent his evenings street preaching. However, it didn't take long before Dowie began to disagree with the church's Presbyterian teachings. He especially took issue with their stance on predestination. He didn't believe that salvation was preordained before birth. Instead, he preached that a person's actions determined the fate of their souls. Too much at odds with the Free Church College's beliefs, Dowie transferred to Edinburgh University for his second year. To his dismay, it was more of the same. As a result, he became more outwardly critical of his courses, challenging his professors at every turn. Dowie's insistence that he was right was yet another sign of his need to dominate. <laughs> Around this time, Dowie's distrust towards medicine deepened. Through his work as a chaplain in medical wards, he saw firsthand the failures of early modern science. Appalled, he witnessed both young and old die at the hands of doctors who seemed to be guessing at their patients' illnesses. This experience cemented Dowie's belief that medicine was a lie. He soon grew frustrated with the church's tolerance of the ad hoc healing taking place in the medical wards. However, before he could do anything about it, Dowie received disappointing news that brought his studies to a screeching halt. In 1871, 24-year-old Dowie learned that his family back in Australia was experiencing financial hardship. This meant he needed to return home at once. The development was a huge blow. While the university at Edinburgh had its flaws, his confidence as a preacher had grown under the tutelage of some of the most renowned theologians of his time. By comparison, Australia seemed primitive. However, since Dowie couldn't afford to live in Edinburgh without his family's help, he begrudgingly returned to Adelaide. There, he worked as a store clerk for the next year. The entire time, Dowie was miserable. He was certain his dream of becoming a clergyman was over. Then, in May 1872, Dowie's misery came to an end when his father arranged an appointment for him at a local church. When Dowie arrived at the church, he was greeted by its clerical elders. After making him kneel upon the dais, they placed their hands on his head. Then, the elders asked Dowie if he was ready and willing to teach the truth of the gospel. Solemn with the import of the moment, Dowie replied that he was. 
after a group prayer, it was made official. Dawi was ordained into the Congregational Church, and at long last, he would get the chance to live up to his name, fulfilling his destiny as a helper of man. Coming up, Dowie's staunch belief in God almost blinks out. Now, back to the story. In 1872, after two years of study in Edinburgh, 25-year-old John Alexander Dowie was back with his family in Australia. Due to his father's connections, he was able to become an ordained pastor in the Congregational Church. Finally, Dowie's long-awaited dream to be a man of God was a reality. For his first assignment, Dowie was sent to the small town of Alma. It was a vast rural wasteland, 90 square miles of empty nothingness. Its congregation was similarly small and unimpressive. Even worse, they hardly deigned to show up for Sunday service, leaving Dowie to preach to a mere five or six people at a time. This was not the flock Dowie had envisioned. This was not the heaven-sent mission he imagined for himself. And in the face of his stark reality, Dowie was quickly disillusioned. So after only six months, he resigned from his post and returned to his parents' home in Adelaide. His career in the church was seemingly over before it had even begun. Dowie had to wait nearly a year before he was given another opportunity. Then, in late 1873, a post became available in Manly Beach, Sydney. The setting was an improvement on Alma. As opposed to preaching to five or six people at a time, Dowie managed to grow his congregation to 70 active parishioners. And yet, he still wasn't getting the fulfillment he sought. Furthermore, Dowie was disgusted with the moral corruption he saw amongst his congregation. He expressed this discontent in his diary, writing, Church-going in Sydney is but a perfect malaria of spiritual disease. My congregation suffers from indifference and cowardice, leprosies of pride, hatred and vanity, burning fevers of money and pleasure-seeking, and an epidemic of vice. Despite his ire, Dowie's congregation wasn't overly worried about the status of their mortal souls. They were far more interested in playing matchmaker for their young, single pastor. To that end, they insisted on introducing Dowie to every eligible woman in town. Dowie firmly resisted their efforts. He didn't need them to find him a wife. He was already secretly in love with his cousin, Jeannie. She happened to be the daughter of his formidable Uncle Alexander. When Dowie learned Jeannie was about to move away, he finally gathered the courage to confess his love in a letter. To his dismay, Jeannie didn't return his ardor. Dowie was left reeling, depressed by the combination of his heartbreak and his dissatisfaction with his congregation. Ultimately, he was no longer certain if the clergy was the right path for him. Dowie was so aggrieved by his current state of affairs that he even considered moving back to his beloved Scotland. And then a chance encounter renewed Dowie's beliefs. One day, Dowie was walking down the street when a homeless man asked him for money. Upon closer inspection, the pastor was shocked to realize that the beggar was Robert Candlish, the son of a former mentor back in Scotland. The young man had fallen into vice. 
Dowie was convinced that it was divine intervention that their paths happened to cross so far away from Scotland. He interpreted the coincidence as a sign that God wanted him to help Candlish. And after weeks of preaching to the young man, Dowie wrote to Mrs. Candlish that she shouldn't worry. Her son was saved. Days later, Mrs. Candlish responded with praise and gratitude for Dowie. She also revealed that her husband had recently passed away. According to Mrs. Candlish, her husband's last prayer was for God to help his troubled son. With this news, Dowie was certain. Meeting Robert Candlish was a sign that he was on the right path. This restored his faith that he was meant to guide people back to a godly life. He rationalized that the only reason he'd yet to realize his mission was because his church in Sydney was just too small. So Dowie quit yet another church. His delusions of grandeur insisted that he deserved a much more impressive parish than Manly Beach. In February of 1875, 28-year-old Dowie took a post in the affluent city of Newtown, New South Wales. The church seated up to a thousand worshipers, making it his largest congregation by far. However, what drew Dowie to Newtown most was the church's affiliation with the nearby Camden College. It meant that once again, he would be surrounded by philosophers and theologians like back in Edinburgh. At Newtown, Dowie also got his first taste of luxury, as the post came with a two-story mansion. He reasoned away the extravagance by surmising that the leader of a large church needed to look the part. Then Dowie wasted no time getting into debt, furnishing his holy home. At last, things seemed to have fallen into place for the young pastor. He had a large congregation, access to the local seminary, and an impressive home in which to live. As Dowie saw it, he only had one problem. He didn't have anybody to share his good fortune with. Thus, Dowie recommitted himself to finding a wife. But before he could even start looking, he was called back to his parents' home. When he arrived, Jeannie and his uncle Alexander greeted him at the door. Upon laying eyes on Jeannie again, Dowie's feelings immediately rushed back. To his surprise, Jeannie took back her initial rejection. This time, she claimed that she could see herself falling in love with him one day. Though not a declaration of love, it was enough for Dowie. So he proposed to Jeannie on the spot. Unfortunately, the couple's wedding was put on hold when a plague ripped through Newtown. Dowie watched, horrified, as the people of his congregation were afflicted with fevers, delirious rantings, and foaming at the mouth. He once again realized the uselessness of medicine, observing 15 patients die in the hospital in one day. Then one evening, Dowie was notified that one of his Sunday school pupils, Mary, was on the verge of death. When he arrived at her home, the usually demure girl was delirious and spitting profanities. On seeing Dowie, the doctor turned to leave. On his way out, he predicted that Mary would die, stating that it was the will of God. The statement made Dowie's blood boil. In the kind of outburst he hadn't experienced since adolescence, he grabbed the doctor by the collar and shouted that the plague was not an act of God. Instead, Dowie insisted that Mary's pure soul had been tainted by something sinister. It was the devil's work, and no medicine could combat that affliction. Only prayers would do. 
Alarmed, the doctor dismissed the pastor as a lunatic and fled. But Dowie wasn't giving up on young Mary. He placed his hands on her and prayed. Then, like magic, Mary's fever disappeared. Her troubling mutters fell silent, and she opened her eyes. Astounded and grateful, Mary's mother was certain her daughter's recovery was a miracle. This belief was compounded when Dowie went on to heal her siblings and then several other members of his congregation. Soon the plague lifted entirely, and though it was likely because the disease had run its course, Dowie took it as a sign. He believed it was further proof that God wanted him to preach the message of divine healing. In the aftermath of his religious revelation, 29-year-old Dowie and his cousin Jeannie were married in May 1876. Their first son was born later that same year. However, the birth of a baby couldn't quell the rising tensions between the young couple. Their biggest issue was money. Jeannie didn't like how much of a spendthrift her husband was. She often watched helpless as he racked up considerable debts. Jeannie was equally concerned that her husband always seemed to be at loggerheads with his superiors at the church. However, when she brought up these issues, Dowie pushed back. He repeated the justifications that the leader of a large congregation needed to have a home of equal stature. As for his quarrels with the church elders, Dowie felt he was in the right. He disliked being managed and being told how to do his job. Fed up, Jeannie moved back in with her parents, her newborn in tow. On arriving, she told them about Dowie's irresponsible spending, his fights with the elders, and his newly stated desire to quit his successful congregation entirely. Dowie's uncle was furious. He eviscerated his nephew in a series of letters, demanding that Dowie step up to his responsibilities before he dragged his family down with him. The antagonistic missive brought out Dowie's ugly side. He wrote a scathing letter to Jeannie, telling her that if she didn't support his decisions, then she could go her own way. Young and insecure, Jeannie ultimately relented. She decided to return home to Dowie. Dowie's harsh response to his uncle's reasonable criticism was yet another sign of his possible underlying narcissism. According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, narcissistic people are easily stung by critique, causing them to react with anger when their belief that they're special is questioned. 31-year-old Dowie extended this same belief of his inherent superiority to his congregation. That's what led him to leave the Newtown Church in 1878. He was determined to set up his own parish. There, he'd be able to evangelize without oppressive church elders telling him what to do. To that end, Dowie set his sights on the Royal Theater in Sydney. He considered it the only setting impressive enough to house his superior sermons. To his wife's dismay, he sold the expensive furniture from their home to rent the theater. Dowie's decisions seemed to pay off, as he managed to gather over a thousand followers within a few weeks of preaching. For her part, Jeannie was unimpressed. What was the point of thousands of followers if they were still broke? But Dowie believed it was unethical to depend wholly upon the church for a living. Fortunately for Jeannie, Dowie's conviction wasn't resolute, and he later agreed to accept a modest salary. Due to his measly compensation, the late 1870s were difficult on the Dowie family. As Jeannie had feared, her husband's decision to leave the security of the Congregational Church in Newtown left them in financial straits. 
Dowie, on the other hand, wasn't discouraged by their poverty. His determination to evangelize remained unwavering. Furthermore, he loved their new home in Sydney, so much so that he ran for a parliamentary seat on a temperance platform. After a spirited campaign, Dowie came in third place. He considered his loss a public humiliation. To remedy it, he ran for office a second time, putting aside his supposed holy mission in order to assuage his bruised ego. The second time around, 33-year-old Dowie was determined to win. His desperation caused him to fall victim to a British conman. The scammer promised to finance Dowie's campaign. However, the man claimed that he first needed money to settle his affairs back in England. Despite the bizarreness of the request, Dowie provided him with the requested funds. The Englishman and Dowie's $300 were never seen again. It was this latest humiliation that finally drove Dowie out of Sydney and turned him off of politics for good. As for Jeannie, she'd once again had enough. After the Dowies left Sydney, she moved back in with her parents. Defeated and alone, Dowie was forced to accept a temporary post in the nearby suburb of Sackville. True to form, it wasn't long before Dowie's conduct began ruffling feathers at his new church. This is because even while knowing he was only a temporary replacement for Sackville's real minister, Dowie tried to overhaul the place. When the staff warned him he couldn't impose any new rules, he tried to fire them. This behavior caused a lot of resentment, and soon a wave of complaints about him reached the original Sackville minister, who was on sabbatical in England. The sheer profusion of aggrieved letters caused the absentee minister to cut his vacation short and return home. Then he sent a disgruntled Dowie on his way. Thus, 36-year-old Dowie left Sackville with yet another failed assignment under his belt. However, there was one silver lining. Despite Dowie's combative ways, his fervor had earned him a small, loyal following within Sackville's parishioners. This group left town with him and became the basis of his new church in Fitzroy. With the Fitzroy Church, Dowie would finally see his divine healing platform take off. However, as his following grew in number, so too would his detractors. Coming up, Dowie's popularity earns him dangerous enemies. Now back to the story. In 1883, 36-year-old John Alexander Dowie was fired from his church assignment in Sackville. His termination was one in a long string of failures. Dowie had no reason to believe his new church in Fitzroy would be any different. However, he was soon proven wrong. After assuming his post at the church, Dowie began making home visits to the sick amongst his congregation. One of his early cases was a pregnant woman who was on the verge of death. However, after Dowie prayed over her, the dying woman made a fast recovery with her pregnancy still intact. Amazed, her gathered family and friends credited Dowie with saving the woman's life and that of her unborn child. Over the next few weeks, more such miracles followed, and all around town, testimonies arose from people that could suddenly see or hear again, all thanks to Pastor Dowie. Even in the face of so much adulation, Dowie never claimed to have supernatural abilities like other faith healers of the day. Instead, he assured his growing following that Dr. Christ worked through him. 
Soon, the townspeople of Fitzroy flocked to see Dowie in action. In one such event, before an audience of 400, he prayed over the sick and ailing as an entranced audience watched. The performance was equal parts Sunday church and dramatic theater. Within a year, news of Dowie's church made headlines in newspapers all across Adelaide. His positive press soon reached his estranged wife. After reading about her husband's prolific miracles, Jeannie decided to return to Dowie, bringing their children with her. However, not everybody's reaction to Dowie was positive. The pastor also attracted a fair amount of skepticism. His detractors criticized how he attributed all diseases to the devil. Furthermore, journalists insisted that the dozens of cures Dowie claimed were nothing more than a result of psychosomatic illnesses. However, there might be another reason why Dowie's faith healing was so successful, namely the placebo effect. This phenomenon occurs when someone's belief in a healing method produces curative effects regardless of the efficacy of that method. Be it the miracle of faith healing or placebo cures, 37-year-old Dowie's following became so big that he needed a larger church. To this end, his followers raised funds to construct the establishment. In August of 1884, Dowie opened the doors to the Johnston Street Tabernacle. With the ability to seat 3,000 worshipers, it was his biggest parish yet. Every week, the building was filled to capacity as faithful and curious people alike showed up to witness Dowie's miracles. Jeannie Dowie later recalled this time as her husband in his prime. She described him as having the fire of the Methodists and the water of the Baptists. However, as Dowie's popularity grew, so did his temper. On one occasion, when the city council fined him for the church's lack of building permits, he began a series of disputes with local officials. While that issue was brewing, Dowie also encountered problems with the church's landowner, who alleged that he had violated the terms of his lease. Dowie responded with his characteristic outbursts of anger. Equally furious, the landlord closed the gates of his church in retaliation. Dowie didn't let the closure stop him. Instead, he decided to preach right outside the shuttered gates. This decision flooded the streets with hundreds of his followers. And while they were appreciative of his daring, the city was not. Believing that Dowie's street preaching was a public disturbance, officials arrested him to put a stop to the gatherings. Far from being upset by his arrest, Dowie relished the heightened attention it got him. Going to jail for standing up to the city's ungodly authority was the exact type of PR that brought even more followers to his church. So he continued to preach in the streets, knowing that it would get him arrested. These frequent incarcerations soon made Dowie a local celebrity. However, after one particularly long stint in prison, Dowie tired of his antics. Seeking to avoid being locked up again, he settled the lease terms with his landlord. This allowed him to reopen the church's doors in the summer of 1885. Dowie believed this concession had assuaged what few detractors he had. However, in September 1885, he got an uneasy feeling as he sat at his desk one afternoon. Though he could barely explain the instinct to himself, Dowie suddenly felt compelled to clear the church, so he sent everyone home for the day. The next morning, when Dowie returned to his office, he was stunned to find it demolished. 
He later discovered that somebody had placed a bomb underneath his desk. The only positive thing that came from the incident was Dowie's certainty that he had a psychic connection with God. How else could he have known to clear out the church? However, his supposed closeness with God was put to the test just a few weeks later when his youngest daughter, Jeannie Jr., fell gravely ill. In the beginning of Jeannie's illness, Dowie prayed, confident that God would heal her like he had done for Dowie's patients so many times before. However, no matter how hard he prayed, Jeannie's condition seemed to worsen. And soon, Dowie began to feel like God had deserted him in his moment of need. Dowie was desperate for a solution. And though his hatred of modern medicine was immense, his love for little Jeannie far outstripped it. So Dowie put aside his own convictions and asked the town doctor to administer to his daughter. His sacrifice was in vain. Despite the doctor's efforts, he couldn't cure Jeannie, reinforcing Dowie's long-standing prejudice against medicine. After the doctor's departure, Dowie felt helpless. He held his daughter and prayed. That's where little Jeannie died, in her grieving father's embrace. The morning after Jeannie's death, Dowie delivered a teary sermon. Nestled within his words was the belief that the devil had stolen his child. This notion allowed Dowie to continue believing in God's healing powers, even in the face of his daughter's death. Unexpectedly, the grief brought Dowie and his wife closer together. The elder Jeannie took an interest in preaching and soon joined her husband at the pulpit. She too gave impassioned speeches on the powers of divine healing. Their joint proselytizing increased their church's prominence, and soon Dowie's fame spread internationally. He began receiving invitations from Europe to speak at conferences and minister in churches. However, Dowie wasn't ready to leave Australia. He felt he still had so much work to do in the land of his daughter's death. So he spent the next few years traveling the country and spreading his message. In 1886, in the midst of his traveling, 39-year-old Dowie allegedly experienced a new gift from God. He claimed he was able to read the minds of others. Since there's no evidence of such an ability being humanly possible, it's likely this was yet another incidence of Dowie's healthy ego. Nevertheless, Dowie saw his new powers as a sign that he was meant for something new and far greater than what he was currently doing. His belief was cemented later that year when he had a vision of a golden city, a utopia that would restore the Christian faith to its early roots. He didn't think that such a holy place could exist in Australia. He believed instead that a country that was still finding its footing would be more welcoming of his vision. So Dowie decided to move his family to America. Over the next few months, Dowie made arrangements for his departure. Then, in January 1888, he handed over the leadership of the Free Christian Church of Fitzroy to his loyal followers Joseph Grierson and John Wallington. In return, they offered Dowie a parting gift of $100 as a thank you for bringing them out of the darkness and into the light of God. In March 1888, after saying the rest of his goodbyes, John and Jeannie Dowie, along with their children Gladstone and Esther, boarded the Maranoa. 
Hundreds of their followers gathered to wish them farewell as they embarked on a mission to spread the power of divine healing in America. In June of 1888, after a long journey, the Dowies got their first glimpse of America. As their ship approached land and the fog cleared, they saw the lights of San Francisco. Despite arriving with very little money, the family was ecstatic over what awaited them in this new land. Dowie had planned ahead and taken out ads, announcing the imminent arrival of healing through faith in Jesus. He hoped that this would pique the interest of potential American converts, priming them for his arrival. Although his expectations were high, Dowie never imagined the sheer level of success he would find in America. By that same token, he likely couldn't have guessed the vices that success would soon birth in his character. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back Tuesday with part two of John Alexander Dowie and his eventual founding of Zion, the religious utopia that would make him a billionaire. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Cults was written by Edlin Ortiz. With writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. And stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.